Hey, Mountain Park Church family, it's great to be with you again. Thank you to Pastor Alex for starting off the first half of Matthew chapter 4 for us last week. If you missed that, it was great. You want to go back and catch that on our website or on our YouTube channel. We are picking things up at verse 12 in Matthew, and we're just going to dive right in and uh, see what we can see. So, uh, Matthew 4.12, if you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab it and open it, and uh, we are going to head in there. Let me just find it here. Okay, so Matthew 4.12, uh, we're going to read this first sort of couple of verses, and I'll just make some general thoughts and observations about that. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth and then left there and moved to Capernaum beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali, beside the sea beyond the Jordan River in Galilee, where, many so, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light and for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. All right, let me just um, start this off by reminding us again, the book of Matthew is not just sort of a uh, propositional doctrinal statements that Jesus is calling us to believe. Yes, there are some of those, but Matthew was the preeminent gospel in the first 200 years of the early church because it is not just uh, giving us um, what Jesus taught, but actually how to live. So a lot of what Matthew is adding here uh, has a great theological significance, a, a significance for how we are to approach life. And the reason the book of Matthew was so popular, it was the most widely read, it was the most widely circulated, the most widely copied and studied book for the first maybe close to 200 years of church history, is that it gave them the best instruction for how to be a minority people in a hostile environment. They lived under persecution and uh, oppressive government in the first and second centuries in Rome and in the Roman Empire. And so the Gospel of Matthew and even what he's leaning into here in terms of uh, this second half of chapter four is not just sort of like, let me give you a bit of a geography lesson and uh, some facts and figures about Jesus, like let's Google map where he lived and all of that stuff. It's, it, Matthew's got a theological, pastoral uh, reason and significance in giving us some of these details. And so when he says he left Judea and returned to Galilee, that word um, for left, uh, really most closely translated is he retreated. So he hears that John has been beheaded and he retreats to Galilee. As he's beginning to launch his ministry, his public ministry, he retreats 
to Galilee. And here again, Matthew is painting this picture of the upside down kingdom of God. We've already seen in, you know, in Matthew chapter one, as he's giving us his theology of God, we've already seen these larger principles that Matthew's trying to set out in front of us. And one of them is that God's ways aren't our ways. He doesn't think the way we think. Strategy and wisdom to God are not the same as strategy and wisdom to us often. And so what Matthew here is underscoring that Jesus's move into Galilee was not by all conventional wise standards strategic. He wasn't following leadership best practice. He wasn't following, you know, the, the wise strategic roadmap to a good future as, you know, uh, as determined by the culture around him. It, this is actually demonstrating that Jesus is willing to move in unstrategic and atypical and unconventional ways. Galilee, in terms of like is, uh, the, the life of Israel, the culture of Israel at the time, Gal Galilee was the backwoods kind of like place for the rejects and uh, for uh, those that were... Um, you know, they were revolutionaries that were coming out of there, people that weren't uh, necessarily associated with the mainstream thinking and ideology of Israeli life at the time. And so Galilee, there was no strategic rationale for this. There was no specific prophetic words that Jesus was fulfilling in going there specifically to Galilee. And so Matthew is underscoring here again our need to realize that God's ways aren't our ways. And Jesus was willing to follow God in obedience and surrender in ways that seemed unconventional and atypical. The question we need to ask for ourselves just when we observe this is how does this challenge in your life, just practically right now, Let's just pause and have a practical application moment. How does this challenge the, the, the vision you have for your life and your future and your pursuit of what is uh, most logical or makes the most sense for you? How does this challenge your perception of, hey, this is the wise next step for my life? Hey, this is the uh, most logical trajectory. This is the most logical decision I need to make. I, you know, it's, I faced this a couple of years ago when, when being challenged by God to come back to Mountain Park. And some of you have heard this story a gazillion times. I'm not going to tell the whole thing now. But in terms of like wise, strategic life trajectory vision I had for my life, this made no sense. Not only did it make no strategic sense, I didn't want to do it. I had no desire to do it. And I literally questioned God. I said, why would, why would you call me to do something that will, it seems so unfulfilling to me right now and so backward to me right now, so counterintuitive? And I just remember God clearly saying, look, you can try it your way. And if you go your way, your life is going to go like this. 
You may get to the place where I'm calling you to go, but there's going to be way more pain. There's going to be way more hurt. You're going to run off into the ditch many more times. This road that I'm leading you on is not the one you would choose for yourself, but it's the one that's best for you. And it has been the most fulfilling years of my life and in our family and all of these things have been in the last few years as I've trusted God to move in unconventional and unstrategic ways in my own life, trusting him to go to the Galilee of my own life. So how does this challenge your thinking as you think through your future, even as you think through the plans that you have right now, how is this challenging your own assumption of what is rational and logical, the best next step? Could it be that God maybe has a different way to go about that? Could it be that God's vision for this next season of your life looks different than yours? The question is, are you willing to trust him with that? Are you willing to see God the way that Jesus did and recognize that his ways aren't my ways, his thinking is not my thinking? So what makes most sense to us or is most logical is often not the kingdom way. And I think this is part of what Matthew is drawing out here. In emphasizing Jesus' retreat into Galilee, Matthew is reshaping for us again a way of life that's shaped by humility and faith and obedience and trust in God, not by simply going forward with our plans for our life based on best strategy and our own determination of what's logical and right. From day one at our church, and maybe it was because of the process that even led me here, from day one, our, our team has felt this, this core sort of pull of God to be unconventional, to be willing to be unconventional. That's like a, a core part of our culture as a church. We are willing to lay aside what we think is most strategic. We have people here on staff and in leadership who have been a part of church leaderships for decades and decades. But what we've sensed God saying is, you need to be willing to surrender what is logical and smart and conventional for yourself. The best practice of how to lead a church, how to engage in your community, how to go about what we do as a church, you need to be willing to surrender that and be willing to trust me to go to places that are unconventional. And the first massive example of this, and there were so many in that first couple of years, like so many, there were so many reasons why um, we shouldn't have experienced the growth we did and the blessing we did and the financial breakthroughs and resource. Like there's so many reasons why that was all illogical. <laughs> and one of the chief ones was the second year we did our giveaway offering. We do that in the third week of December every year. And even when, when we, oh, I presented our leadership team at the time with that idea, like, hey, in December, I feel God challenging us to take two offerings. 
And one of the offerings will be an offering of faith uh, and expectation for the year to come. It'll be sowing into the vision of our church um, and an offering of thankfulness for everything God had done, but an offering of faith for everything that he had for our future. And we're going to do it in December. And they said, what? What are you talking about? How? December is not the right month to take a big offering. And then I said, you know, in the week after that, we're going to give that whole offering away. We're not going to keep a red penny of that. December is typically in churches the largest giving month. It's when many churches recover from, you know, giving that they've been behind in for the rest of the year. So it's not logical to give it away. It's not logical to invite people to give sacrificially above and beyond all of the stuff they're doing for Christmas, all of the, the, the things they're doing, you know, to, to give to charities and good causes before the end of the year. Why would you ever ask them to do that, Andrew? And it, I remember the, just the look on their faces was bewilderment. Like, I don't know, I guess we'll just trust you. And so the second year we had our giveaway offering. We had processed through as a staff and as a leadership team, and I just really sensed God saying, hey, I want you to give it to this specific pastor in Niagara Falls. I want you to sow into his life, into their family, into their ministry, all of that stuff. And so we prayed about it, we discerned it. We thought, okay, based on last year's year-end giving, that's going to be like maybe, you know, five, six thousand bucks. It'll be a great blessing to them. Well, we took the offering, that second giveaway offering. And I told the church, I said, this is for a local pastor. I didn't say who it was for. It's for a local pastor, and I just want to challenge you to give. And I thought in my head as I'm giving that, I thought, oh, it'd be awesome to bless them with a few thousand bucks and whatever. Later that afternoon, our team emailed me and they said, Andrew, the giveaway offering was just shy of $17,000. And then the text messages started to fly into my phone. Like, did you see how much the offering was? Are you sure? Maybe we should rethink. Like, that's a lot of money to be giving to another pastor in the city. There's probably better things we could do with that money. Why don't we split it up? And, and we had this crisis of faith. Conventional wisdom was trying to now drive a wedge into God's way of dealing with things and our, our need to walk in obedience. And I said to our team, I said, guys, we need to be faithful. The amount of the offering is irrelevant. We need to be faithful. And to, I, I realize you've never done this before. You've never been a part of a church that just literally gives away all of their offering. But we need to trust Jesus with this. Sometimes what's most logical and makes the most sense to you is not actually the way forward from God's perspective. So are you willing to lay down and surrender what you think is best, the best way to approach you know, a relationship right now or a situation, the best way to walk into you, the purpose that God has called you for, the, to experience a fulfilled and deeply satisfying and rich life. Maybe the way 
to get there needs to actually be surrendered. Maybe you need to be willing, like Jesus was, to leave Judea and go into Galilee. The most atypical leadership move ever. <laughs> Let's continue on in that, in the uh, writing from Isaiah that Matthew is citing there. It's called Galilee of the Gentiles. And um, that's basically like saying Canada, the melting pot. We have many different cultures and nationalities and in Galilee specifically regionally in the, in the um, Middle East in that time was a melting pot of other cultures. That's where the nations were found. And I think part of what Matthew is getting across here and bringing us again to consider in the nature and the character of God is that it's God, Emmanuel with us, God who enters in to the middle of our mess, God who enters into the melting pot. It's God who's going to the outcast and the unqualified. It's God who's going outside of the bounds even of Israel. This was a bit of a prophetic thing that Matthew was talking about, that, that one day the, the work of Jesus would extend beyond the borders of Israel and would be a blessing to every nation. Matthew's painting a picture here of a God who makes it his business to call the unworthy, the outcast, and the distant. Just like Matthew highlighted that nature of God and his genealogy and with the Magi and with Jesus as Emmanuel, it's God who comes down to the earth. He comes into the middle of our sin marred and dysfunctional and broken lives and the light of God penetrates the darkness in those places. Matthew is drawing us back into this image and picture of God. Where are you willing to go? Where are you willing to be led in your life? What parts of your life need the light of God in them. And Matthew ends this section in verse 17. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. He literally copies verbatim John the Baptist's message. And this call to repentance now for Jesus is the entry point of the Sermon on the Mount that we're about to get to in chapter five. But what Jesus is saying is, look, um, turn your lives around. That word repentance, again, is not just changing your mind or experiencing the feeling of regret. Repentance is not primarily feeling sorry for yourself or feeling that emotion of regret. It's a complete change of direction. And Jesus is saying, turn your lives around. It's interesting that Matthew here isn't descriptive. We aren't told what to turn our lives around from, but the emphasis that Jesus is giving generally and that Matthew is giving is we need to turn from anything that is preoccupying us away from God. We need to turn from those things and toward God. Bruner says this in his commentary, whatever keeps one from turning toward God or whatever keeps one from turning toward the coming kingdom is that from which one should turn. And uh, we can also see repentance and action illustrated further down in this chapter in the calling of the disciples as they leave their nets 
on the shore and follow Jesus as they leave their families and their businesses and follow Jesus. Repentance is turning your lives around. It's changing what you think about your priorities, your vision for your life, what you are willing to do or not do. Repentance is that. And what's interesting is that um, Jesus isn't saying, repent so that the kingdom will come. He's saying, repent for it is coming. It's near and it is here. And often uh, in this, we see our desire to bargain and cut a deal with God is exposed. Our, our nature is to say, God, um, I, I'll repent. I'll give you this if I can experience the blessing of your kingdom. God, I'll, I'll tithe a little bit, but but I'm tithing a bit so that you will come through and be faithful on the other end. Because what I, what I really want is to experience your abundant blessing. So yeah, I'll give you my tithe. But what I want is the blessing of your kingdom. What I want is this part of your kingdom. And often we try to bargain with God. We make deals with him. I'll, I'll give you this decision. I'll surrender this part of my life. But God, I want something in exchange and in return. I want the blessing of your presence and your kingdom. I'm not willing to give this up unless I find something good in return. And Jesus is saying, no, not don't repent so that. The kingdom of God comes so that you experience the blessing of God. Repent because the kingdom is coming and it's already here. Turn your lives around. And Jesus there is confronting us with our natural desire to want to bargain with God. To turn our faith into something that benefits us to turn our spiritual life into something that we receive blessing from instead of just following in surrender and obedience. Matthew continues in verse uh, 18. One day, Jesus, as he was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets, and he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. And so we see in Matthew, we've already seen in this gospel, that Matthew is laying out uh, an entryway into the kingdom. It's repent. Confess, be baptized. In other words, repent, confess, and die to yourself. Lay down your life. Confent, con not confent, confe uh, repent, confess, and lay your life down. That leads to now, if we're changing direction, where are we going? If we're changing the orientation of our values and our whole life, where is that now being directed and focused? Jesus said, come follow me. Our new direction is into the presence of Jesus. Our first call in our spiritual life, our first call 
in the, the road of maturity and discipleship, of sanctification, of spiritual formation, whatever language you want to give to it, our first call is to be with Jesus, to live in closeness and intimacy with him. Follow me was an invitation to be intimate with him, to be with Jesus. And in Jesus's time in rabbinic speech, it meant become my students, be apprenticed to me, join my school and live life with me. The students of their rabbis in Jesus's time, um, the students lived with their rabbis. They didn't just come to lectures and hear his teaching. What Jesus is inviting them to is not our Western way of educating. It's not a seminary experience. It's not um, you know, a university experience. He's not saying, come to my lecture and earn a degree. He's saying, come and live with me. You need to walk in proximity to me. You need to live in intimacy with me. It's a study in residence he's inviting them to. And in the first century context, Jesus wasn't the only rabbi. There were many other rabbis around him, but the, um, the Jews in that time had three tiers to their uh, education system. And the first tier, level one, was called Beit Sefer, which means the house of the book or house of scripture. And that was sort of like their grade school aged teaching uh, for young kids. And in there, they would memorize the Torah in the Old Testament. And most of them were finished by the age of 12. And at that time, most of them would veer off and go into their family business. And the second level of education in Jesus's time was called Beit Talmud, and that's called, that means the house of learning. And so those students that didn't go into their family business but had a, a, a potential for higher education, sort of the cream of the crop of the Beit Sefer, would then move into the Beit Talmud, and that was for ages 12 to 15. And that school was uh, usually built just off the synagogue, and it was run by full-time paid teachers. And in that school, um, they would memorize the whole Old Testament of the Bible. So if I just turn back a few pages, they would memorize this whole portion of Scripture. So those who graduated from Beit Talmud at the age of 15 would essentially have the whole Old Testament memorized and Almost everybody was done at that point, but the cream of the crop, the Rhodes Scholar, the, the Ivy League of everything, the most, the MIT level kind of graduate was uh, their third level of education, the Talmudim, and that was exceedingly difficult to get into. It was over the top hard to get into that, and only the best of the best were part of that, and students would apply to be taught by different rabbis and that rabbi would interview them and go through a rigorous, rigorous interview process. And if he believed that that student had what it took, that rabbi would say to that student, come and follow me. And so Jesus repeats this to these men on the beach, these fishermen, and says, come and follow me. And he says, I will make you fishers of men. And we think that that's a bit of a corny joke, but it's actually quite a sophisticated play on words because uh, in Jesus's time, a rabbi was called a fisher of men. I don't know if you knew that before, but a rabbi was called a fisher 
of men because he would capture the mind and imagination of others and he was a person of great influence and so Jesus is literally saying hey you guys are fishermen come and follow me and I will make you a great teacher I will make you a person of great influence as you walk with me as you walk in intimacy intimacy with me I will be the one who develops your influence, who sets you on a course of life to fulfill your purpose, to fulfill God's vision for your life. Follow me and I'll do that. And that follow me was an invitation to a continuous walk with God. It wasn't a single act of repentance or a moment at the altar. It was follow me and keep following me. And if you walk in intimacy with me, I will lead you toward a life of significance and influence where the very purposes that are buried in your heart from God come alive. And that verb follow me is also written by Matthew in the present tense imperative, which means that it's a continually re, um, re-energizing statement. It's a life of following Jesus. And so the goal of a, a student of a rabbi was to become a carbon copy of that rabbi. And so my question that I have and that you have is like, great, so if, if, if following Jesus begins with intimacy and it begins with being with him and developing nearness and closeness to him, how do we do that? How do we cultivate that? Last week, Pastor Alex talked about some of the spiritual disciplines and the spiritual practices of Jesus and the disciples are, they are vehicles and containers that, that there's no glory in the discipline themselves. There's no value in the discipline itself other than it is a vehicle into the presence of God. It is like uh, you know, hopping into a car and being brought into the presence of God. So those disciplines we talked about, like fasting, solitude, silence, uh, scripture reading, memorization, um, all of these disciplines are containers that help us enter into a life of intimacy. But I want to give you one other really practical one, and that's practicing gratitude. It's actually gratitude that opens up the presence of God to us. From a neuroscientific standpoint, gratitude is actually, uh, when we are experiencing gratitude in our brain, it actually changes the structure of our brain. That gratitude from that neuroscientific standpoint is the vehicle through which we can become aware of God and his presence. Part of being near Jesus and walking in intimacy with him is being aware of him at all times in our day, in every season and moment of life, in the hard, brutal, bitter times, and in the joyous times. And we cultivate that awareness through gravity. Psalm 1, not gravity, (laughs) through uh, gratitude, that's the right word. Uh, Psalm 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. The entry point into the presence of God is thankfulness and gratitude. 
Psalm 1611, you will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Psalm 21, 6, you have endowed him with eternal blessings and given him the joy of your presence. It's interesting. I'm going to read you this quote from a neuroscientist. Brain science reveals that this joy sensation is crucial for emotional and relational development. Our brain looks specifically to the face of another person to find joy, and this fills up our emotional gas tank. So interesting. So the entry point to the presence of God is gratitude. In the presence of God, we experience joy. But that word for presence in the Hebrew literally means face. When we see the face of God, when we're face to face with God, that's actually where we experience the joy of life. The truth is that Jesus's life was characterized by joy. And we can't actually enter into his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount properly unless we actually see God the way that Jesus saw him. And because of how Jesus saw the face of the Father, the life of Jesus was filled with joy. Intimacy with Jesus, nearness and his presence are the beginning place of discipleship. Why? Because we will never be able to fully enter into obedience and surrender and death to self without joy, the joy that comes from the presence of the Father. I, I, I think most of us believe that that invitation to die to ourselves and to intimacy and surrender and obedience comes with misery. And the truth is right now for many Christians, this year has been brutal and hard and what I've seen over and over and over again is that those people who profess faith in God are often the ones who are most critical, they're the most angry and frustrated, they're mad at government, they're mad at masks, they're mad at lockdowns, they're mad at other people who disagree with them, they're mad at vaccines, they're mad at anti-vaxxers, they're mad at uh, churches that haven't responded the way they want, they're mad, they're mad, they're frustrated and angry, they're miserable. And we think that that's maybe what characterized the life of Jesus because we see his invitation to obedience and surrender as misery, but it wasn't, it was joy because Jesus practiced and lived in intimacy with the Father. And the way that we develop intimacy, the way we enter his presence is with gratitude. Here's what I want to leave you with, a gratitude exercise. I want you to take three minutes or five minutes, sit down and pray, and just simply say, God, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want to love you with my whole heart. And so I invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and bring to mind something that I can be thankful for. Some way that God has worked in my life in the past. Some provision that he's had. Some moment in my life where God came through. Some person or circumstance or event that I can be thankful for. And I want you to just wait. And until something comes to mind. And then I want you to fully enter that again and relive and experience 
what it felt like and what you experienced as God worked in your life powerfully, as you experienced renewal and joy and freedom and liberty and laughter and all of these things, relive that and use words to express back to God your thankfulness and gratitude to him for all of those things. I want you to live in that for a few minutes. Come back to that experience of thankfulness, that experience of gratitude, and experience the joy of walking with God. This is the entry point into life with Jesus. Jesus said, come follow me. The cost is high, but Jesus is not inviting you into a life of misery. He's inviting you into a life of joy. That's what he's calling us into in this next season of our lives. Are you willing to follow him to unconventional places? And are you willing to practice gratitude, practice it three times a day in your life, to practice gratitude as the entry point to the presence of God where we experience the joy that comes from being close to Jesus and close to God. It can transform and change everything. I can't wait to connect with you next week. Uh, actually, Pastor Brenda is. We're going to do a couple week, just little segue as we talk about the character of God that Jesus knew and understood before we get to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. I'll see you next week.